Good morning, church. Would you pray with me, please? Great God and Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the great salvation that we have in you. God, we thank you that you've seen us as important enough to die for. God, even though we turned our backs on you, and even though we continue to turn away from you, God, we thank you for the salvation that we have in you. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. God, I pray that you would hide us behind your cross. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said amen. Amen. Man, it's great to be here this morning. I miss seeing a lot of you guys every week. It's incredible to be here, and it's an incredible privilege to share the gospel with you guys this morning. Uh, First, uh, this is not an NBA championship ring on my finger. This is a wedding ring, so Julia and I got married. My beautiful wife, Julie, is up there, looking awesome. But uh, sincerely, from the bottom of our hearts, for every gift, for every well wish, for every Facebook message, we sincerely want to say thank you. It's truly so meaningful to be a part of the family here. Um, most of you are probably wondering who this dude is next to me. This is actually my brother, Zach. I know we look a lot alike. (laughs) We're both really tall. It's really awesome. But Zach is a a fellow pastoral leader at Citizens Akron, and Zach and I are going to be sharing the word with you guys this morning. We're so excited to tell you guys more about Citizens Akron and about what we feel God has called us to do in the city. Uh, Real quick, what's up, citizens? It's good to see you all this morning. My man AJ back there, it's good to see you all this morning. But we're so excited to share with you guys what we feel that God's called us to do in the city of Akron. But first things first. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to 2 Corinthians. If you have electronic devices, please scroll. We're going to be in chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 17 and 18 in chapter 5. I'll give you a few minutes to... Flip and scroll. I'll read. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. This is God's word and it's true. You may be seated. So 2 Corinthians is a book written by a guy named Paul. This guy named Paul was what many would like to call a gospel globetrotter. Paul went around preaching the gospel. Paul was a man who in his life persecuted the church and was adamantly against the gospel. But Paul had this encounter with Jesus on his road to Damascus, and Paul's life was changed. And Paul, from that point, in response to the vertical reconciliation that had happened in his life, determined that the rest of his life was going to be spent fighting for, recon, fighting for horizontal reconciliation in the world around him. So Paul's on his third missionary journey, and he's in a place called Macedonia. And Paul had wrote a previous letter to the people at Corinth, and the people in Corinth weren't too happy with it. So one of Paul's disciples, Titus, went back to Corinth, and, and Titus came back with a, with a tough message. So Paul sent this letter back with Titus, to the people in Corinth. Now, the people at that time in Corinth 
were having some issues. There were these people called super apostles who were coming in and who were saying the things that Paul taught them was wrong. They were saying that the gospel that Paul taught them was actually not complete. So they were adding things and taking things away from that gospel. So in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, which, 2 Corinthians, what you're going to find is Paul defending his apostolic authority. So Paul is going to tell them, hey, the gospel that I spoke to you is the true gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel by which you were saved, and this is the gospel by which you will be sustained. And then you find Paul doing something awesome. Paul stops that defense, and Paul just starts making much of Jesus, and he starts talking about the excellencies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he starts lifting it really high. In chapter 4, he talks about us being these jars of clay with this treasure inside, and that treasure being the promise and the hope that Jesus will one day return, and we will be made whole in Jesus Christ. So we are these jars of clay, but inside we have this treasure. And in chapter 5, what you find him doing is you find him pointing to that eternal reality. But then we've got a therefore in verse 17. And one of our professors at Malone would always say, when you see a therefore, find out what the therefore is there for. And the therefore is there in response to everything that happened. And he starts with therefore. And he said, therefore, anyone who is in Christ. And that anyone, my friends, means anyone. It means that no matter who you are, that no matter where you're from, that no matter what you've done, you can be in Christ. Anyone. And I know that that's good news to me because I know that I've done some shady stuff. And I know that I've been some shady places. And I know that I'm a broken individual who Jesus seen fit to raise from the dead through his spirit. And maybe I'm the only one, but that's good news. That's good to know that anyone can be in Christ. And you see that word in there? That word in means in the realm of or in proximity to. And you see the good news about that is that Jesus made a way for us to be in proximity to him. He made a way for us to be in relationship to him. You see, in the beginning, God created everything, and everything was perfect, and man was in perfect relationship to God. In the beginning, you see this cool story, and it says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. God walked with him. He had a direct relationship with Adam. But then what do we find? We find sin creep in, and we find sin break, tear, and mar that perfect relationship that God had with Adam. But because of Jesus Christ, because of what we just sang, which is true, that he's seen us as worth saving, he came down. He put on flesh, and he died the death that we deserve on the cross for our sins so that we can be in relationship with him, so that we can be in proximity to him. So if anyone is in Christ, then the next sentence, the next phrase in this passage is he is a new creation. Right? So we don't just stop at the death on the cross. We don't just stop at Jesus carrying our sins on the cross, but we get an opportunity to step towards hope. Right? And then we don't have to dwell in the pain and the brokenness of our past, but that we actually get to move forward and we are created new. We are new creations. There's actually, I read a couple authors on this idea of being made new, and one of the authors that I read said that this is the 
pinnacle statement in the whole of Scripture. Because throughout the history of salvation, from Genesis to Revelation, being made new is what God is in the business of doing. He is in the business of making us new. And I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of broad sweeping strokes of Scripture. Right? I, I love to see how different pieces fit together and how different pieces go together and how the entirety of Scripture kind of fits into itself and makes one story. So I tried really hard in my readings to say, all right, this being made new is this big, huge, like redemptive story of God redeeming the world, and I couldn't. Because you know what it's about? It's about you being made new. It's about you being made new. It's not, it's not about like the collective whole, right? And I love the collective whole and the way that God moves his community of people. But this passage is about Jesus' death on the cross and then you having the opportunity to be made new because of his resurrection. That you as an individual, you have the opportunity to experience the uh, in Christ and being transformed. And this transformation isn't just about what happens on Sunday morning, but it's about you being totally made new. That you sit at work Monday through Friday and you are a new creation with Christ dwelling in you because of what he's done for us on the cross. That you mow the grass, that you pray, that you eat dinner, that you raise your kids, that you engage your marriage, that you fill in the blank, that you play soccer, that you play football, that you play basketball, that everything you do because you are in Christ, because Christ now dwells inside of you, you have an opportunity to be made new, that you are in the process of being transformed. In the next statement, the old has passed away. That makes me excited. The old has passed away. Well, what is the old? You see, in America, we have this triumphalistic narrative. And the triumphalistic narrative well, I'll go through it with you real quick. The triumphalistic narrative is this, my friends. Um, I'm going to pay attention in school, and I'm going to pay attention in school so I can get, go to a really awesome college. I'm going to go to this really awesome college so I can get a really awesome job. I'm going to have a little fun while I'm at that awesome college, but I'm going to pay close attention so I can get a really cool job. And while I'm at that awesome college, hopefully I find a nice spouse, and me and that nice spouse can get married. And me and that nice spouse can go move into a starter house. And while we're in that starter house, maybe we'll have one kid and we'll get a dog named Skip and we'll build a white picket fence around that house. And then after that starter house, we're going to move into a larger house that we sell that starter house. And then we're going to live there for 20, 30 years. Then we're going to sell that house, take the money, and we're going to live happily ever after in a nice, dope retirement condo. <laughs> This, my friends, this, my friends, is the American narrative. But I'd like to contend to you this morning that that's not just the American narrative or the narrative of the West. I think we give ourselves too much credit as Americans. I think that is the narrative of sin. And I think that's what sin does to us. Because at its most fundamental level, what happened in the beginning was Adam and Eve said to God, hey, thanks for creating me, but no thanks on telling me how to live my life. What they said essentially was, God, you're the creator of all things. 
But we want to worship ourselves. We want to worship ourselves. This guy named Soon Chan Ra, he's a professor. What he says is that we believe in the Trinity, the Trinity's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in our hearts we really believe in the American Trinity, me, myself, and I. Another author, Paul Tripp, says the DNA of sin is selfishness. And if we really think about it at its most fundamental level, the old way is the way of the flesh, and it's the way of the man. And the way of the flesh causes us to hold up these mares constantly and to look at ourselves. And you see, as Christians, what we've done in America is we've said, hey, I'm going to live this half-life. Guys, I I love hip-hop. I can't help it. I grew up on the south side of Barberton. I wear Jordans. I listen to rap music. I can't help it. I love it. And in rap music, the music that's going to happen, the beat that's behind the words, the beat that's behind the lyrics, there's going to be two types of beats primarily. There's going to be a sample, and there's going to be a pure beat. What a sample is is when you take an old song and you remaster it, you rework it, you refurbish it. So a lot of hip-hop, I listen to music from the 70s, soul music, because it's a sample of something that was. But then there are those genius in hip-hop. And those genius are such good musicians that they're able to create a completely new beat. A completely new beat. And guys, what we do as Christians a lot is we live lives that are sampling our old lives. We say, hey, I'm a Christian. So I'm not going to do certain things, but certain things are still okay. Hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm still going to live by the American narrative that points completely at me. And I go to church on Sunday, so that's okay. And I give tithes, so that's okay. And I go to small group in COC, so that's okay, even though I'm still a part of this larger narrative of sin. But this text is telling us that the old is past. And what Christ is doing and what Christ has done is Christ is writing a completely new song. He's writing a completely new beat. And what he's doing is he's inviting us to sing this song with our lives. The old is past, church. The old is past and the new has come. And then the very next statement that we hear, right? So if we, if we read this passage again, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old the old has passed away, behold. And now the original language didn't have punctuation like we currently have today. And when we read behold, we're just like, oh, behold, the new has come. But no, what Paul is saying, behold, like listen to what I'm saying, behold, the new has come. Pay attention, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, smiley face, because this is important. Like, you need to listen to what's coming. You need to listen to what's happening. Behold, the new has come. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. You, church, have an opportunity to be transformed. All of us are on this process. We are all on this process of sanctification, right? And sanctification is a holy spiritual way of saying we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. 
that church, as you grow in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And I think so often in the church, um, we say, well, the new's coming, right? The new, when I die, I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus. The new is coming. And while part of that is true, that we don't get to experience all of the newness now, that we will experience in full in eternity, it's now. Because this statement, I think one of the key words in this final statement is has come. It's not coming. It has come. It has come and is here. And now we get an opportunity to experience new, the new kingdom. We get an opportunity to be in Christ. I think I love when we see like the way the world works and it just lines up exactly with what God has communicated to us in his word. Right? Because so often we, we watch movies about transformation and about the underdog story. And we, say, and we watch movies like Remember the Titans. And Remember the Titans, man, this is a sorry football team. And they're not going to win any games. But what do they do? They have a transformation, right? And they, start, they practice really hard and they engage and they work at it and they become champions by the end of the movie. And so this picture that we are all drawn into and captivated by is a story of what God is doing in us. And the beautiful part of it is that we don't have to practice really hard. That it's a free gift that Jesus has so freely given us. That he gives us, a, he gives us an opportunity to live with him now in the newness that he creates for us. Verse 18. I love verse 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Guys, sometimes because we're part of awesome churches that we come to every Sunday, we read a lot of books, we attain a lot of knowledge, but sometimes I think we forget the very guts of the gospel. Sometimes I think we've read so many commentaries and we read so many articles, guilty, that we forget the pure beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Jesus has reconciled us back into relationship with the Father. Without Jesus Christ, we would live eternity separated from Christ. We would die and go to hell, and we all deserve that. We all deserve that. But Jesus loves us so deeply and so passionately that he came down, put on flesh, and died on a cross and took the death that we deserved to reconcile us back into a relationship that we broke and that we messed up. That's what Jesus did for us. And Jesus... Because he did that, now calls us to the ministry of reconciliation. And the ministry of reconciliation should be the natural byproduct of us constantly having glimpses of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I realize what you've done for me. In Luke chapter 19, there's a story of a short dude who's a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming, and Zacchaeus wanted so desperately to get a glimpse of Jesus that Zacchaeus climbed this tree. So Zacchaeus climbs this sycamore tree. He gets a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus sees him. 
He has this encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come down, I'm going to dwell in your house. And because Zacchaeus had an encounter with Jesus, because Zacchaeus seen the goodness of Jesus and had this encounter with him, the natural byproduct of Zacchaeus was, I'm a tax collector, I defraud people, my own people. I'm not going to do that anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pay back fourfold what I have taken. That's the natural byproduct. Is this ministry of reconciliation because of what Jesus has so done for us, because Jesus has been so gracious to us when we don't deserve it. That means that when I'm on my job and the person next to me is getting on my nerves, it means that I'm going to show grace to them because I've been made new, because Jesus has shown grace to me. It means when my family member wrongs me, I'm not going to be like a normal American and not talk to them for years on end. But it means that I'm going to seek reconciliation and I'm going to forgive them because Jesus has so forgiven us. I can't help this, but I'm a Cleveland sports fan. My uncles were Cleveland sports fans. Then I went to college and my boy Max, he's such a Cleveland sports fan that it like propelled me into a new level. But I love Cleveland sports. And up until this year, praise God, champions. <laughs> praise him. But up until this year, being a Cleveland sports fan had a natural byproduct. And that natural byproduct was losing. <laughs> and you could pretty much chalk up the fact that, hey, we're either going to lose right off or we're going to get to the very end of the game, be at the very last second, expecting to win, and our hearts are going to be ripped out and stomped on. Because the natural byproduct of being a Cleveland sports fan was expecting to lose. Guys, the reason that the church in the first century went from 12 people in 300 years to 30 million people in the national religion of Rome, the reason why the gospel multiplied and you see the book of Acts actually come to its conclusion. The gospel is spread to Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world. And the reason that it was spread was because they understood and they realized that the natural byproduct, the natural byproduct of this reconciliation that had occurred in our hearts was the fact that they were now ministers of this reconciliation and that they had been made new, and that they were going to be beacons in their communities of that reconciliation. So last service, um, there were a handful of high school students uh, sitting over here, and anytime I sp I'm in front of a group of people, I, I just feel this compulsion to throw out this statistic. Um, if you've ever heard me talk before, I'm sure you've heard it. Um, but there's this statistic out there from the Barna Group that says 80% of high school students who grow up in the church will walk away from the church because they perceive that Jesus means nothing. 80% of high school students who grow up in the church will leave the church after high school because they perceive that Jesus means nothing. That should break our hearts. 
Right? That, that means, so you look at, I'm sure all the high school students are in their high school thing right now. If you look in that room, if there are 100 high school students in that room, 80 of them, 80 of the 100 says the statistic, will walk away from the church because they perceive that Jesus means nothing. And this is, this is where James and I get to stand up here and say something, and then you guys are going to talk to Ryan about it another time, right? But it's because we don't, on a consistent basis, the church does not engage the newness. The church does not engage the fact that we are really being made new, like, and we don't get excited about the fact that God lives in us and the old has passed away, the new has come, and now we have been given this new mission, this timeless mission. But God has created a real tangible way for us to move forward by restoring the world around us. And I'll tell you what, when high school students start to see their parents, when high school students start to see their leaders being transformed by the gospel, that, that statistic will be reversed. And not only our high school students, but the people in the communities all around us will see the gospel in a way that they will be drawn to it. They will be drawn to it. When we engage the newness that God has put into us, high school students, an unbelieving world will be drawn to the gospel in a way that they never have before. I, hope I made it. I didn't start crying. That was great. Um, I fought through it that time. Um, so I, with that, we just want to give you guys a little bit of a snapshot of how we see our process of reconciliation and how we see the ministry that God has called us to uh, in the city of Akron. So a lot of you guys are up here, and you know, James has been up here talking about citizens a few times, so you're wondering who the heck is, am I? Who the heck is Zach Cole? Um, so just to give you a little bit of a background, James and I met, it's actually nine months ago, which is a testament to who God is and how God is really orchestrating this whole process, right? So, um, I was, I was working at a church in Akron and I just felt God saying, man, you engage the city. You need, you need to get more involved, more involved in the community that you live in. My wife and I, um, bought a house uh, four years ago in the middle of a, a high-crime, low-income neighborhood of Akron. Um, and I felt like God was saying, man, you, that's where you need to be. Like, that's where you need to begin spending the majority of your time. I love the church that I was a part of, um, but I was predominantly reaching people who weren't from Akron. Um, so I, I really wanted, I was asking the question, God, what are you, what are you doing? And, and what do you want me to do as a result of this conviction? So um, I, I walked away from that church, and in kind of in the process of walking away from that church, I met James, and uh, I did not want to plant a church. We were kind of having conversations among a few of my friends of like, man, what does church look like? Like, what does this mean? What could it look like? What could it look like in the city? Um, and then James marches into my life and says, we're planting a church, and I'm like, Yes, this is awesome because I don't want to plan a church. Like I don't think that that's what that's what's in my in my scope. And now nine months later, James and I and the group of people sitting right here um, are planting a church, <laughs> and and it's it's so incredible. So, um, twenty five years ago, my family moved to Akron, and we started going to church on the east side of Akron. We moved into the west side. We started going to church on the east side of Akron. 
um, in this big old historic church that had been around since 1831. And uh, the church, the building wasn't, isn't that old, but the church has been around since 1831. Um, and I, I kind of waffled through high school and even early college, and I wasn't really following Jesus. Um, but through this church, I did summer camps every summer um, in the neighborhood that the church was in. And I would have these two weeks where I pretended to follow Jesus, I think pretty well. Um, I, I hid it from everyone around me, um, including the 80 kids that I was leading in this summer camp. Um, but, but God was still working on me because my heart broke for this community. And I knew even though I wasn't really following Jesus and didn't really think that I wanted to go into ministry, I knew that I wanted to work in, with inner city kids. And the dynamic of the black community that I was predominantly working in just broke my heart. I began, you know, I'd, I'd spend two weeks with these kids and anywhere from first grade to sixth grade. And, you know, we'd make an impact and we'd have some influence and we'd build relationships. And then I'd go back to my home with my phenomenal parents and they were great. But I'd come back 50 weeks later and I'm like, but don't you remember last year? Don't you guys remember what we talked about 50 weeks ago? And they, no, like, it's all gone, right? And so, so my, my heart just broke and broke and broke. And praise God that he kind of grabbed my heart in a different way through college. And all that did was magnify this heart for, this, for the city. It just made this heart for the city that much deeper um, and that much more real. So about four years ago, um, my wife and I moved into the community and said, man, we, if, if we're going to reach this community, we need to be part of the community. So in all of my middle-class whiteness, I moved into the neighborhood and said, okay, how as a middle-class white guy do I reach this predominantly African-American, this predominantly black community, and really be part of the community? So we started to develop this language that we talked about engaging wells in the neighborhood. So John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well, right? And there's nothing special or spiritual or sacred about the well. Um, but the well is a place where people connect. And then you start to look at what, what, the well, what wells were throughout history and what they still currently are in places that don't have running water. They're a place where people naturally connect. At least once a day, you have to go to the well. If not two or three times a day, at least once, you have to go to the well. So we, we started to say, well, are there naturally existing wells in the community that we, can, that we can go to? So we went down to the Jewett Street Park, which is a little park at the end of our street, and we quickly found out um, that parks are not really wells. In the suburbs, parks, parks are wells. They're places where people connect and gather, but in the city, there's stigmas for parks. Rapes, drugs, and fights happen at, happen at parks. So we said, all right, well, this isn't probably a place where we're going to meet a ton of people. So we said, all right, well, what about the bars? And we'll leave our kids at home this time, and we'll go to the bars. We didn't think it was great to bring the kids, right? So, so we go to the bar, and again, quickly find out that both bars in our community are gay bars. And they're... Um, it's not necessarily a place where people from our community were going. So people from outside the community would come into those gay bars, but no, not really many from our community were engaging there. So again, we found places in our neighborhood that weren't necessarily wells for our community. 
And fast food restaurants, our community is littered with fast food restaurants. So we said, fast food restaurants, what about those? And if you know anything about fast food restaurants, they are, liter- they are designed so that you are in and out. They are not a place where people linger and people just hang out. So we started to say, all right, well, if there aren't wells in the community, can we create wells? Can we start to, can we start to create wells in the neighborhood? So kind of in the last couple years, our neighborhood has kind of exploded, and we've had friends join us in purchasing homes in the community. Um, and we now have 37 young Christians living in the neighborhood and have rehabbed eight or nine houses. Um, but one of the coolest parts is that we got a couple houses torn down that needed to be torn down. And we said, all right, well, can we use this vacant land? Can we use this empty space to be a well? Can we create a well? So actually, just a couple weeks ago, talk about this like it was a long time ago, it was a couple weeks ago that a church from our community came in and fixed up that lot, leveled kind of the ground, put up a fence, put up a swing, put up a couple benches and a picnic table, and now slowly but surely, that lot is becoming a well for our street that we have kids coming and engaging our ho- at our house all the time. Um, my wife probably even gets annoyed by it, how often they're knocking on the door um, when I'm not home during the day. It'll be a blessing when they go back to school in a couple of weeks. Um, but but it, we've, we've been able, God has created this place um, where people want to connect. So we continued asking, we continued saying, okay, God, what does it look like for this group of 37 people now to really to be able to do this on a bigger scale and engage our community in a way that our community is not currently being engaged. So we started to look at some buildings in the community, and uh, we had this beautiful old mansion that sits on three acres, oddly placed right in the middle of our neighborhood, um, but it's as blighted as the rest of the neighborhood, and we started to say, man, what could we do with this? How could we, how could we turn this into something, a place that's used in the community? And after a couple months of walking through it, we found out it was going to be like 1.5 or so million dollars just to get it weatherproof. And we were like, well, it needs a lot of work inside too, so I'd hate to hear what, what it needs inside. So we were probably looking at like $2 million, and we said, no, that's probably not possible. But I was sitting in the back of that, of that building one day with a plumber who had just given me like a $50,000 quote. Um, but we were talking, and he's a great guy. He loves the Lord. He's actually donated a lot of the plumbing at our, at our home that we were able to rehab. Um, and he said, what about that building on the other side of Burger King? So it's like this mansion, Burger King, and then this big old church building um, that has been sitting empty for about five years. And he said, what if, what if you were able to repurpose that? It's like three times the size. Um, you could probably get it for cheaper and use it right away. It doesn't, need a ton of, it doesn't need a ton of rehab. Now, there's plenty that needs to be done, um, but not like, not like this big old, old mansion. So um, we started to walk through it, and we are now eight, nine months into that process, and we actually hope to close on this building tomorrow. Um, and this is part of the craziness of this whole story. And so I told you I uh, grew up, uh, started going to church in, on the east side of Akron as a five-year-old. This building that we're purchasing is that building. Um, It's the same building, so it's kind of uh, come full circle. Um, It was cool. At one of our vision dinners um, several months ago, you can see we're sitting here worshiping at one of our uh, vision dinners, and we were, James and I and a few people were sitting in the pews kind of on the left side, and and I just had this moment of like, how insane. I sat in those pews and said, I don't want anything to do with ministry. 
I was part of that statistic, right? The 80% of high school students who perceive that Jesus means nothing. That was, that was, part, that was me. And now I'm sitting here in, in all of God's awesomeness and his restorative power. Um, he's planting a new church. He's breathing new life into this old building that has been sitting empty for five years. Um, so yeah, so that is the process that we are on. We're not just using this building as a church building. Um, we've actually, part of the goal and the heart behind Citizens is that, man, we really want to be able to fight with people who don't know Jesus and fight for the common good of a community. I know James was up here, I think, a couple months ago, and he talked about uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 and what it meant for the Israelites to really engage the community and not, not just be an isolated little bubble over here in the community, but to really be part of the community and part of blessing the community. So we're saying, all right, so we've got this church, and we're on this church planning process, but can we do something that really allows us to fight for and with the common good of the neighborhood? So this 30,000-square-foot church building that we hope to close on tomorrow uh, will be shared with nine different organizations. Um, there will be a coffee shop. There will be um, a carpenter who will be in there. Um, there will be our, our church will be, will be there, but several other nonprofits, three or four of them that are not faith-based at all and that have no history with Jesus. And the, the cool part of this, and let me tell you a story of, of how this is, act, like the, the, what it means to fight for the common good, right? So we're sitting with this organization that has no faith roots at all. And James and I are sitting across the table of them talking about utilizing space. And, you know, they sheepishly kind of look at us and say, well, aren't you guys pastors? Like, are, are we allowed to be here? Are, are we allowed to be in this space? Like, is this holy space? And they're like, we like Jesus. We just, I don't know, he's a good guy. And, and James and I are able to sit across the table and say, no, this is what we know the gospel to be. We know the gospel. Jesus Christ has died for us so that we might live in this world and engage people all around this world. So we want, we really want to be a church that fights with you. That as you fight for the, for the growth and the development of our community, we want to come alongside you. We want to bless you. And, and that all comes as a product of the gospel, as a product of reconciliation. So two or three times now, we've been able to sit across the table and people kind of sheepishly ask us that question about, well, aren't you the church? Are we allowed to be here? And we're all say, Yes. Because of how much we love you and care about you, we want you to be in the space. We want to share this space with you. So we've been on just this crazy nine-month journey. Uh, it's nine months for me, but it's been like two, three years um, for some of these guys and the guys that you have, have known for the last couple years. Um, it's just awesome. I wish we could stand up here and share with you just the God story after God story after God story. James leaned over to me while we were sitting here um, earlier, and he said, do you remember when this happened? <laughs> and I was like, yes! And we were so excited about some of the things that God has been doing. And before I continue rambling, but before I um, shut up so James can kind of wrap us up, um, I just I want to affirm just how awesome God has been through this whole thing. 
So part of, you know, being this middle-class white guy moving into the inner city, I'm constantly told um, and have been told over and over again that, man, you need to do ministry with a black guy. You need to do ministry with a black guy. You need to do ministry with a black guy. You need to do ministry with a black guy. And I would always affirm it and say, yeah, yes. Like, bring a black Christian. God, I need a black man who loves the Lord to do ministry with. And, you know, and I, I, do, I do ministry with tons of black high school students, and, and I engage the black community a lot, and I'm still, like, you need a black guy to do ministry with. And so literally for four years being in this community, I've been praying, God, like, I need a black guy to do ministry with. I need a black guy to do ministry with. And, and we say that, we say that, it's kind of funny, but it's so true in the way that being able to partner with a black dude who loves Jesus in the same way that I do, I mean, the way, yeah. Because here's the truth, right? The black community they fight through life without fathers, right? They fight through life in lots of brokenness. And that's not true of every black person that you're ever going to see. But man, the kids in our neighborhood, we don't have many relationships with dads. Right? We have a lot of relationships with moms. My wife is able to connect with, with several moms in the neighborhood. But our community, the communities around the city of Akron need strong black men to get behind them. And to say you can do this. And it's not just about going to college and getting an education, but you have a hope. You, in the same way, can be transformed by the gospel. Because the gospel is about making you new. It's about giving you hope in a culture and in a world that is full of hopelessness. We have an opportunity to step towards people and say, no, you have hope. Not because of the physical realities that you're in, but because of what Jesus has done for you. You have hope. Three years ago, I was sitting in the office over there with an old man named Jim College. <laughs> Jim, I hope you listen to this. And when I was in the office with that old man, I began to bear my soul. And I go, Jim, I don't know what I'm doing. I just graduated from Malone, and I don't know if student ministries is for me. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing, man. And Jim challenged me to pray a very dangerous prayer. Jim said, I love you, man, and I want to give you the space to figure out what God's calling you to do. Pray and ask God where he's leading you. In the meantime, I want you to start school again. So I'm like, all right, I'll start school again. And then after that, like, I walked from his office to Ryan's office. I'm like, Ryan, is this a good idea? <laughs> and Ryan's like, yes, I affirm this, I bless this. Ryan, at that time, was meeting with a group of us at 7 a.m. At, uh, at John's Grill in Canton and pouring into us and investing in us this idea and mission. And after a rough day of class, I drive from my mother's house in Barberton in hopes to feel a little better to the Swinsons on South Hawkins. <laughs> and as I'm driving to the Swinsons, man, I pass Rolling Acres Mall. And as I pass Rolling Acres Mall, 
I just got these happy feelings, and I'm like, man, I remember being a kid, playing in the arcade there, having good times, catching the bus out there. Good times at Rolling Acres Mall. Uh, Rolling Acres Mall is now a desolate wasteland. And as I looked at that, I began to tear up in the car because as I looked at that geographical place, that geographical place was attached to moments, and those moments were attached to memories, and those memories were attached to people, and most of the people that those memories were attached to, if Jesus returned or took them that day, would live a life eternally separated from him. And they would live that way because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not in arm's reach of them. And a few weeks later, I came into the church office, and I said, Carl Olson, Where's Carl Olson? I know Carl will listen, and I know Carl will engage this. And I'm like, Carl, man, like, what if we planted a church? Like, what if we planted in the city a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, disciple-making church that was this trailer of God's goodness and God's glory and his coming kingdom on an everyday basis? And Carl's like, let me talk to Kara, but that sounds good. And over the process, that group of us begin to grow. And you see some of the crazy folks here in the front, most of which were already living in Akron and already asking these questions. And that's how God's calling us to be ministers of reconciliation. That in the places we live, work, and play, people have everyday encounters with Jesus Christ because they have everyday encounters with us. But check this out. I am a literal member of the Chapel North Canton. I went through membership classes. I am a part of you. And so is our church. We are being sent from the Chapel North Canton. And I don't know if you guys have caught this theme, but for the last few months, Ryan and Brandon and Dan have been standing up here and have been sharing this vision of gospel saturation. They've been saying, hey, what would it look like if Habakkuk 2.14 was a reality in our geographical area? What if God's glory covered Northeast Ohio like the waters covered the sea? Church, that comes by us saying, Jesus, I'm looking at you, not at myself, not at my calendar. I'm not the most important thing in my life, but Jesus, you are. And Jesus, because you are the most important thing in my life, Jesus, because you are my personal priority, please paint my present reality. And Jesus, use me as a paintbrush. That prayer that Jim challenged me to pray is a very dangerous prayer. Because when you pray, God, use me, the scary thing is he might actually use you. And the scary thing is when he starts using you, it might cause you to at times say, hey, my calendar's not that important. Hey, my bank account's not that important. Hey, everything that's surrounding me is actually not that important. But God, you are that important. You are that important. And listen, I'm blessed enough to see it happen all the time. I'm blessed enough to be in this awesome group of people. I'm blessed enough to hear stories about my boy AJ, who's on our core team. He's an engineer at Schwagelock. 
And I'm blessed enough to hear stories about how God is painting AJ's present reality and how he's not only just able to be a boss, but he's able to be a godly boss and ask the people on, the job, on his job how they're doing and have gospel conversations with them. I'm blessed enough to know Peter. A lot of you guys know Peter. He grew up here. And my man Peter is working for an organization called World Relief that resettles refugees. And I'm blessed enough to hear stories about people who have been dislocated because of a war from their countries and been placed here. How Peter's able to be family to them and locate them around people from our core team and around Christians that he knows so that they can have family here and people who care about him. I'm blessed enough to know his soon-to-be wife, Hannah. Give them both a hug before you leave. And Hannah works with the courts in Akron with girls who have been victims of human trafficking. But guys, it's, it's, we're one movement. I'm blessed enough to know my guy, Alex Cook, who works at Omni. And Alex, when we go have half-off sushi on Mondays, Yes, brothers like sushi when they've been in North Canton a long time. <laughs> but I'm blessed enough to know Alex, and Alex tells me about how he does therapy with people and how he's praying for people, how he's getting to know people and building relationships with them. I'm blessed enough to know Wayne Harrison and hear stories of how nurses are being prayed for and hear stories about how God's moving in Wayne's current situation. Church, gospel saturation happens when we, like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when we see God's glory, when we say, here I am, send me. The band's going to come back up. We're going to sing a song together. And I challenge you, while we're singing this song, to press in. Press in. I challenge you to pray a dangerous prayer and ask God, what are you calling me to do? God, your glory is your gracious. Here I am, send me. Pray with me, please. Great God of heaven, you're marvelous and you're wonderful. God, I pray in these moments that we would connect with you, and these moments would not only be isolated to this time and this space, but that these moments would be connected to the rest of our lives, and to the things that we do tomorrow. God, may we believe the things that we sing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.